todo el mundo. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. My guest today is music publicist Mitchell Schneider, who started out in a truly great era of rock, working with the likes of Tom Petty, David Bowie, and many others. His company, SROPR, is still going strong with offices in Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Nashville, and Phoenix, and is working with established artists like Hart, Joe Perry, Ozzy Osbourne, and events like OzFest, as well as up-and-coming bands. Mitch is also a songwriter, columnist, and food blogger. Plus, he gave me a drink recipe for the new book, Rock Tales. So we're going to talk about all that and more. Welcome to the show, Mitch. Hey, how you doing there, Stacey? Good to see you. Yeah, we can see each other, but nobody else can because this is an audio podcast. Cool. I'd... Um, I'd really love an overview of what made you decide to get into publicity in the first place, or was that kind of something that you just fell into? Um, it was an outgrowth of me being a freelance writer. I grew up in the Bronx. I saw Lou Reed on his rock and roll animal tour. It must have been like 73. And I was so inspired by the music, the outlandish presentation where he did a fake heroin shoot up on stage, which I thought actually kind of trivialized it in, in a very funny way. Well, that's how I interpreted it. But anyway, I was so inspired by it that I wrote a review. No one asked me to, and I sent it into a local paper and lo and behold, they ran it and they said, can we send you some albums to review? And I was like a kid at a candy store at that point. I said, yes. And so began my freelance writing career, which included uh, Good Times, which was where I started, a local publication out of Long Island, New York, that still publishes. It's a wow. bi-weekly. And from there, I, I, I got my stuff published in Circus, Crawdaddy, Rolling Stone. And during that period, I was writing in New York City, 
there was also a lot of changing editors and I kind of felt that my destiny was in the hands of changing editor of constantly rotating editors yeah and I did and I didn't like that um so I thought maybe I should try publicity um I sent my resume out to all the New York firms and labels and there weren't many because when I was sending my stuff out in 1978 uh independent labels had just started really because of the punk boom um and there were there were just a few PR agencies so feeling frustrated but not giving up I sent my resume out west and a company called Salters Ruskin Friedman hired me so I moved to Los Angeles in 19 uh January 1979 Wow. And then the rest is history, I guess. But um, we're going to hear a lot more about that. I I imagine that, um, you know, you've seen a lot in your time. Um, so how has the music business and publicity specifically changed over the years? I'm wondering how the advent of social media and things like that may have changed the business and whether that you think that's for the better or, or not. Um, I don't know if I want to say if it's for the better or not. It used to be easier to be a publicist when I got into the business because social media and the internet did not exist. Um, for instance, it was very finite what I would do. Uh, I would be pitching finite outlets for our clients, getting them, whether it's cover stories or TV appearances or the major radio syndications, with the advent of the internet, it became that anybody could reach you via email 24 hours a day. Where in the old days, there was an assistant answering the phone, uh, and let's say the Arkansas Gazette called about wanting to do a piece on one of our touring bands. The assistant would say, oh, let me give you to our tour press department. Now, it's like my inbox has requests from the Arkansas Gazette and others. And then I have to forward it to the person who can handle the media. So I'm actually now doing more work than I used to. And that part is not fun. I can tell you that. Um, the benefit of the new world though, everything is in writing and that helps. Cause you know, a lot of times you could be dealing with an artist or a manager who may be talking and giving you information and they may forget what they told you. Well, an email that doesn't happen. I would hit back to a client with an email saying, just want to make sure I understand all the points of our call. You want to start doing press on this day. You don't want to do these particular magazines, etc." So everything is now in writing. So on one level, while I'm busier, I have less anxiety because it's everything's in writing, which is why I try not to talk to many people on the phone. When people go offline from an email and saying, can I call you? You know, usually, I mean, if it's a client, of course I'll talk to a client, but that's where things start to get into that old world that I didn't like where people said, well, I never said that, or I did say it, but you didn't hear it. And like that part of the business has pretty much evaporated. So in some ways it's more enjoyable on that level, but exhausting with the volume. I mean, it's exciting on many levels. I mean, there's great podcasts, including yours. 
there's new internet outlets that cater to hyper-specific uh, audiences, which is helpful for a band that, if you're a goth rock band, you know that the goth rock website is going to be your people. It's not just like, yeah, you're a goth band appearing at a general music website, and who really knows how many goth fans might be looking at that website. So the specificity is exhausting, but I get it, and it's it's necessary in the modern world. Yeah, and now a lot of artists can take some of the burden, I would guess, off of a publicist's shoulders in terms of having their own Instagram and taking a lot of pictures and video of themselves. Is that, do you think that's a good thing or no? Yeah, I think it's great that people promote themselves. Uh, and I think it's really key because, you know, a lot of times, you know, we have to explain to clients when they come to us, especially new independent bands, we are not the be all end all aspect of your career. Your career needs a manager. You need a booking agent to book you shows. Do you have somebody who's pitching your stuff to get uh, syncs on film and TV uh, and so forth? Publicity is an aspect in the business, but some people just think, and I understand, I mean, we have a long career. We have great longtime clients, exciting new clients, including young bands. So people think that we control the cards. That's obviously not true. We do a good job and we get respect. Um, but what we do is very finite. So when bands contribute themselves by posting videos and photos, we think that's great. So then the media, before they do an interview with an artist, can look up their, you know, their social handles and go, oh, great. Uh, the person I'm about to interview also has a cooking side hustle. Maybe I can ask him about what his favorite, you know, recipes are. So there are advantages of that. Well, as you mentioned, when you started, there was no internet <laughs> back then. Huh. <laughs> and I guess, you know, in a way there was a mystique, which so I kind of miss, you know, I don't really need to know what Robert Plant had for breakfast. It might be a little right. too much information, but um, yeah, I'm wondering like, who was your first big client back then? And what was your, I mean, what, how did you handle their, their publicity? Um, let's see. Well, I started in 1979 um, at a company and I was uh, working with other publicists. But I really fall, I really go into my own in 1984 when I joined a company called Michael Levine Public Relations. And from there, it turned out to be Levine Schneider Public Relations. And then it was MSO, Mitch Schneider Organization. And finally, we were out today, Schneider Rondon Organization. So let me start with. Uh, Michael Levine Public Relations. So that's where I began to really establish uh, really bigger names. Um, I There was a time where I was handling Ario Speedwagon, Shee Easton, Wang Chung. Um, and then I signed the Everly Brothers who had made a comeback. And the Everly Brothers was a gateway for me into the critic intelligentsia media like Rolling Stone and Time Magazine and Newsweek because it was an album of all new material. They put on great shows in London and then they started to do it in America. Um, I got the Everly Brothers a star on Hollywood Boulevard 
everybody would think that stuff just happens automatically. Well, it doesn't. And it took me three years to get it because there's a lot of politics involved. There was a waiting list of who was waiting in line, you know, to get that. So I remember when I got it, they, it was an amazing phone call because it's one of those lottery ticket phone calls. And I wanted to take it further. So I thought, oh, maybe Tom Petty could uh, give them their star in, a cer in the ceremony. So I called up Tom Petty's office. They called back after I spoke to the person there. Uh, they called back, I swear, in less than five minutes saying, Tom, will do this. Wow. Which was amazing, right? Yeah, and must have been a big fan. So that morning, I meet Tom Petty. And his manager felt very comfortable with me and just say, just tell Tom what you need him to do. So I said, uh, Phil and Don are just ecstatic, honored that you're here. You could say as few as like, I don't know, just a few words or you could talk two minutes. It's really whatever you want to do. Your presence means the world to them and to us. And we thank you. And six months later, Tom Petty was looking for a new publicist. So I got the meeting and I signed it. The manager, Tony Dimitriotti, said, you know, I'm also working with Stevie Nicks and she's rejoined Fleetwood Mac for what would be their Tango in the Night album. So this is all 1987. So I meet Fleetwood Mac and they say, well, who do you handle? And I said, oh, the Everly Brothers and Tom Petty, <laughs> who I had just signed like days before. So I got that account. Then a few days later, we had a phone call from... Uh, the management company that handled the band Heart, who were in the midst of an insanely popular comeback. And so I had the meeting and the manager, Trudy Green, another legend in the business, said, well, who do you handle? And I said, oh, I do Tom Petty, Fleetwood Mac and the Everly Brothers. She goes, you'll be great for Heart. And then a few days later, this is all happening in the, uh, in the month of March 1987, get a phone call from Sharon Osbourne's office get the meeting and she says, who do you handle? So at this point, I, just to be really relevant and on point with his world, I said, Tom Petty, Fleetwood Mac and Hart. I dropped the Everly Brothers at this point <laughs> in my conversation pitch and Ozzy came on. So this all happens in March 87. And then a few months later, I signed also in a month period, Kiss, Yes, White Snake and Gloria Estefan and the Miami Sound Machine. So the, wow. year, the year 1987 was just insane. And then everything followed from that. It was Janet Jackson, David Bowie, Jane's Addiction, Soundgarden, The Cult, Black Crows. And that's how it happened for me. And it was the most, it was so incredible because when I signed that truckload of superstars, I really didn't have the experience of like knowing things like when you work with Janet Jackson, it was something called cover or kill. And I was shaking in my boots when the manager said that to me. What it means is that Janet Jackson will agree to do a cover. If the magazine, for whatever reason, decides at the last moment saying, we really are going to put this inside the magazine because let's say there was a death or something else better came through for them. We had it in writing that Janet could kill the story so she wouldn't be uh, seen on the inside of a magazine, only covers. Wow. So these 
pretty clever. So these are things that I learned along the way. And trust me, I was shaking in my boots for the whole experience. And I just tried to be, you know, what really helped me. I was just really a nice guy through all of our negotiations, including with photographers, because when you were working with David Bowie and people like that, after a magazine gets uh, does the photo shoot, uh, what the rights ultimately uh, revert back to the owner. The owner is the photographer. So we had deals with the photographer saying, of course you own your own work. However, we will need approval of the photos you send out. And we will also need approval in every instance where you're offering your photo. And that would give the artist a sense of protection in, in terms of like, you don't own the photo shoot, but it's your image. So you're going to collaborate with the photographer, so to speak, on where your pictures are going to be seen. So I was really a nice guy in dealing with this. And, you know, yeah, there were some people who bristled. But I'll tell you, I had photo contracts like that signed by the greatest photographers. Um, Mark, Mark Seliger, uh, Herb Ritz, Greg Gorman. I could go on. So when I had... A younger photographer question it, I would say, I understand your concerns. I have photo contracts that are signed by Greg Gorman, Herb Ritz, and others. And they would understand that's uh, at the behest of the artist. So I was very, I was a gentleman, always a gentleman, never raised my voice uh, in those kind of situations. Because if you raise your voice, it basically means you've lost control. And I learned that. You know where I learned that? Um, I was handling Peter Cetera when he had left Chicago. And he was managed by Freddie DeMann, who was also handling Madonna at that time. And I got to his office and he wasn't ready to see me. But his secretary at the time said, Freddie says, you could just come in, listen to whatever he's doing. He was doing some Madonna business on the call. And I could feel it was very heavy. And he never raised his voice just simply saying, this is what's necessary to take this project forward. And yeah, he was handling the biggest star in the world. And I don't know exactly what he was asking for. It could have been a big monetary situation, but he never raised his voice. And I just sat there saying to myself, this is the most powerful manager in the world at this moment. And he didn't raise his voice as through this back and forth where I saw that he was asking and then he asked more things big big lesson to me yeah well that's good to be observant was when you're learning the ropes right it was really key it's like it's basically you're going to school and it's you know take notes and uh, like i just saw the little richard documentary uh about a week ago and mick jagger is interviewed and he says yeah we all the stones open for little richard for 30 straight shows in England, like one of the, when they used to tour every night. And he goes, yeah, I stood at the side of the stage and took notes in my head. And yeah, so that, so he went to school. You know, you gotta keep your eyes open at all time. And there's just so much to learn still. Always, yeah. Um, well, 
When I was growing up, uh, one of my mom's friends had been the personal publicist for Jane Mansfield, and he had some really crazy stories about press junkets, and they did a lot of outlandish things for publicity and some things that seemed like, oh, an accident. Oops, Jane's top fell off in the pool, but it was all pre-planned. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, what is the music world equivalent of that, or what's one of the most elaborate or unusual publicity events that you've pulled off? Um, okay, here's a, a fun one. Yeah, I was handling Ted Nugent, and he was a client that I handled uh, for many years. I don't work with him currently. So I remember reading, and this is like 1986, I believe. I was reading USA Today, the money section, which I never read. And it said that Westinghouse was putting Muzak uh, up for sale. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting because we all hear music in at that time in restaurants and elevators and so on. So kind of like using like my punk rock side of my brain, I said, oh, maybe Ted should make an offer to buy it and then we would destroy it. <laughs> so I called Ted and his manager up and they said, yeah, just why don't you make an offer? I said, well, I see here they're offering like a, a they're expecting like $23 million. So I said, I'll go in and I'll make a low offer. So they decline us. So I, I remember, I don't even know if I have these cojones today to do something like that. I That's what's called young gun bravado. So I called, so I found the number, the secretary answered on the phone and I said, I'm publicist for rock star Ted Nugent. And he's fascinated that it's up for sale. He would like to make a bid to buy it. And you know, how much? And uh, I said, before she even answered, I said, Ted would like to offer $6 million. And the secretary said, which was kind of funny in retrospect, she goes, oh, that's just much lower. That will not be entertained. You know, I said, oh yeah, I see that in the paper. They're asking this. So I, you know, I say, thank you, hang the phone up. And I write a press release saying that Muzak declines Ted Nugent's offer. So we put a press release out and I came up with the quote for Ted. And it's, and the reason Ted wanted to buy it was to destroy it because he felt that Muzak has ruined the best minds of the generation. <laughs> I mean, just something crazy. We put it out. It got so much publicity including Brian Gumbel talking about it on the Today Show without Ted even having to be interviewed. And that's when you really know that you've hit the American mainline when they talk about you and you don't have to sit there and be interviewed. It's like at that moment, it's like you're in the pop culture vortex. <laughs> that's brilliant. I could see that. Ted, how about Ted Nugent Muzak, like a Muzak version of Wang Dang, Sweet Poon Tang playing in the elevator? That would really drive people nuts. <laughs> um, as a punchline to the story is that when they ultimately sold Muzak, the company that bought it asked if Ted wanted to come to the press conference so that <laughs> so they could piggyback on the whole sort of lunacy of it. I love uh, it. But Ted turned it down because we all knew this was a great moment. And if you try to milk it any further, then it becomes cheesy. Yeah. So we passed on it. And yeah, like there was just crazy stuff that you can do. And I never even concerned the legality. I mean, Muzak could have said, well, we're suing you that you put a press release out 
that's saying we declined you. We did not officially decline you. So, but I think that they saw the value in the publicity. But yeah, uh, if you want to hear another crazy story, I'm going to give course. it. Of Okay, so I'm working with Corn, and uh, we're announcing their tour across the street from Wrigley Stadium in Chicago, and they built a small stage, kind of like what you would see like at the Warp Tour, like a mini stage, and Jonathan was going to thank all the fans for coming to say we're announcing that the tour would include $10 lawn seats. Um, so, you know, to be cheaper as concert prices were going up then. And uh, so I came up with this crazy idea. I said, what if Jonathan gives out $10,000 in $10 bills to the people who show up? So there was a bit on the stage, they brought a big fan and there was somebody who came from Live Nation, truth to tell, with $10,000 in $10 bills. It was like crazy, right? And we <laughs> yeah. had this and we had this filmed because it was going to be part of like a new segment we were creating to send out via syndicated TV. So Jonathan puts the wads of bills in front of the fan, but it doesn't blow too far out into the crowd. Mm -hmm. It only really hits the beginning. So then there's a crush of fans against the barricade. Oh, no. And I'm thinking, oh, no my PR idea is going to result in the death of fans. Fortunately, what he they figured out a way uh, that they moved the direction of the fans. So it it's, you know, if the dollar, the $10 bills fanned out a little bit more than just the first clunk. Oh, man. That was like one of those moments in my career where I was absolutely petrified that I came up with what on paper sounded like a great idea, but practicality was like, wow, you didn't think that, I didn't think it through. But sometimes if you think everything through, then you could buzz kill the idea. And, but anyway, there was a happy ending. We got great publicity um, and it made the band look good, made them look heroic to their audience that they were offering $10 seats. And we had a fun little event. <laughs> That's a cool one. Um, well, as I mentioned in the intro, you contributed a rock tale for the book Rock Tales. And um, I always donate a portion of my profits for the Rock and Roll Nightmares books to the Sweet Relief Musicians Fund. And it's a company that you've worked with as a publicist, which I didn't know until I dove into your website a little deeper there. So um, what was your experience with them like? What did you do with them? Well, for Sweet Relief, their main need uh, and we donated our services complimentary, of course, was they wanted to get various different announcements out. And it was when various artists fell upon hard times. Most musicians, I don't, I don't know if I should say most musicians, but many musicians don't have health benefits. Right. And a company, uh, an organization like Sweet Relief is really pivotal because they would raise money. So we put out press releases on a few different artists um, if memory serves, it included Victoria Williams. It included Cindy Wasserman of Dead Rock West, uh, who uh, at that time she had cancer and needed, uh, you know, uh, financial assistance. So that for us is always 
really an honorable thing to do to give back to the musicians. And, you know, a lot of these great musicians we love, they don't make as money. They don't make as much money as we all would like to think they do. So having a, a, a company like Sweet Relief raise money for the, on their behalf is really important. I agree. Um, and it's not just musicians that you work with. SRO has also handled publicity for a book that I loved, Permanent Damage, the story of the GTO's Miss Mercy. And I noticed that you also oversaw tours of American Horror Stories Murder House, which is another favorite of mine. Um, so what is your criteria for taking on a new artist or a new project? Is it like a matter of your personal taste or if you think you can help them or how does that all work? You know, there's many different uh, elements that go into us wanting to join forces with the client as their publicist. A, uh, it, if it's a music act, let's say, we need to at least like their music. Now, we may think that every song on the album is not great, but if there's at least a few that we see is attractive, that, that, we, that we believe are attractive, we, um, we, we feel we could take it on and we bring it to the journalists. I think that's important. We do have to make sure that their politics align with us. So if there was some kind of like crazy skinhead metal group that had uh, divisive lyrics, I would never take them on. Um, and so we have to be careful about that. So in some ways we're like a record company. It's like we're an A&R committee and it's, we have to think, do we want this? Is it, uh, is it a controversial artist? Is the artist gonna take up too much of our time? We have to think of all of these aspects before we, uh, you know, before we jump on to a particular campaign. So there's a lot of thought that goes into it. And even there could be an artist that's pitched to us and they say the album's coming out in 30 days. Yeah, if you, you know, if a huge band called us, we would figure it out because we know that the world is at their beck and call. But if you're the band, if you're a band and no one is really waiting for your album, there's no point to jumping into a PR campaign with 30 days lead time because those spots have been reserved by others who have three months lead time. And those spots include feature stories, whether in Rolling Stone, guitar player, or some culture magazines that still publish like Esquire and GQ. Like you can't even go near those magazines like Vanity Fair unless you come to them four months in advance because it takes a while for them to even consider your pitch. And if they decide to do something, well, we have to get a writer. Uh, we have to get a photographer. There's a lot of elements that go into it. So we're, um, I don't want to say we're picky, you know, like if I say we're picky, that sounds like cavalier and maybe arrogant. That's, You're discerning. Yes, we have to be discerning, not only for us, but for the artists themselves. I don't want to take a band's money and say, we told you so. No, as I passed on people saying, there's no lead time. It will not be a successful campaign. Please keep us in mind in the future for perhaps another album where you have an appropriate lead time for a publicist to pitch. 
Yeah, I wonder if some maybe younger artists are spoiled or diluted by social media, the immediacy of it. You can, you know, post something and then it's out to the world within seconds, but they don't really realize how print media works or or television. All of this and more. Uh, yes. And so, you know, come to us, you know, for any bands that might be listening now, it's uh, you gotta uh, you gotta have lead time and also too. You know, they call it now the waterfall effect of releases, whereby you put one to four tracks out before your album comes out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, along with videos, because these days it's, you know, people are interested in the striptease as this as these tracks and videos come out one at a time. But on the day of release, it's out there for everybody. And it's like the baby was born. And it's like people like the people do like the foreplay more, it seems. So it's not that a record is dead on arrival when it's released. It's it's more fascinating as it's revealed in the striptease or the waterfall, whatever you want to call it. Um, well, I want to talk about your songwriting. Um, I guess you've been inspired by being in the music business for so long I know that you've been writing some songs lately um when did you start that and what kind of music are you writing um I started writing songs probably when I was 15 years old had a local band that played in some coffee houses in the Bronx we were an acoustic trio but all original material so I guess you know, the automatic visual would have been like, oh, this is like a bunch of kids like America, which was a three piece acoustic act or Crosby, Stills and Nash. And but then um, and I play pedal steel guitar. I bought one, which was really amazing because I loved country. And then I then I put that away. And then years later, um, I took my songwriting really seriously again. I felt like I lived more. So I had more to draw from when you're that young it's really hard to like, you really haven't lived your life unless you've had this traumatic life and that and the way it goes in the business now, trauma is makes for good content in songs. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, I had a song that I wrote with uh, uh, for a movie uh, called Off the Record. It was an independent Austin uh, movie about a, uh, a failed rocker uh, who was out of step with the times. The song is called The Wheels Came Off. And I wrote it with Aaron Beavers, um, an excellent songwriter. Um, he was the front man of a band called Sherman uh, that were an indie band. Um, and then I have a song, a country song called Beautiful Gold. It was used in a scene in the Netflix series uh, called Sex Life and it was used in the first season. I have a song that's gonna be released um, on May 19th by the Blackbird record label. I wrote it uh, with uh, an amazing artist named Abby Posner, and it's a gender inclusive song about freedom and acceptance. It's called World Is Yours. And I wrote the song because of all of, because of everything I'm seeing around me, with rights being taken away from women, uh, transgender, and just the hatred exists. So uh, I started the song writing from the viewpoint of parents who were sending their kid, um, a gay kid, off into the world, leaving a small town. Hmm. And so uh, 
the version that Abby came up with is uh, it's, I guess, country folk Americana. And maybe it sounds a little like Tom Petty's Wildflowers. And it's, uh, it's gentle. It's a very gentle song, despite its uh, point of view. And uh, so, yeah, so that's going to be released on May 19th called World Is Yours. And, you know, we'll do a press release about it and all that. And that's exciting. And, you know, here I am at this, you know, at this point in my life. And that's a big honor. And we're really super psyched. Oh, yeah, definitely listen for that. Um, and you've also been writing a lot lately as a columnist and food blogger. So, you know, it seems like you have a never ending abundance of energy and inspiration. So how did you get into that to fit that into your schedule, your busy schedule? And where can people read your reviews? Uh, well, first of all, people can read the reviews. Uh, it's uh, The column is called Living Las Vegas. So if you go to casino.org news and type into the search box, Living Las Vegas, my uh, the five columns I've written have come up, uh, will come up right away. So that's interesting because that's a result of the pandemic. So uh, I'm, my wife and I moved from Los Angeles to Vegas three years ago, right in the height of the early days of the pandemic. Uh, Vegas was great because the restaurants opened uh, Lockdown started like around like March 20th or something. And then the restaurants opened on May 15th. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Of course, it looked like a sci-fi movie with, you know, sections taped off for social distancing and all of that. But there was not live music for at least a year. Uh, so during that year, we start, you know, we were going out to eat all the time. We were remodeling a house we bought and, the diet, you know, the kitchen wasn't ready. So I just started to post about food because food became my new music because I couldn't see live entertainment. So I remember just going out and just looking, you know, thinking about the food more, flavors, textures, ingredients, where does the chef come from? And I just started posting on social media. And as a result, uh, casino.org news, uh, through a writer, uh, a writer, Bruce Herring, a uh, great writer. He follows me on social media and he does some work with that website. So he said to them, you should contact this guy to write a column because he's really seeing Vegas like almost through like a Los Angeles lens. And so that's how I got my column. And that's totally as a result of the pandemic. Cause it's kind of interesting as we all think, like how did the pandemic change our lives? And so, yeah, so now I get to go out, I'll write about whether it's the Avant Pop bookstore that I discovered where of course you had the signing uh, for your book, Rock Tales. Um, there's a great uh, horror store there called uh, Hellbound Horror Collectibles. Um, and I discovered there were so many aspects of the city that are off strip mm -hmm. and you really, and you really have to go in and dig. That means driving into shopping plazas and looking, whether it's in Chinatown, to find like an amazing dessert restaurant, a place that I just love. It's called Sweets Raku. It's all white inside. It looks like the set of Clockwork Orange to me. <laughs> and they serve the most, it's an Asian uh, uh, eatery. They, and, uh, they just come up with the most unique like parfaits and 
with, with and the decorations on the on the dessert are even edible. It's just fantastic. And I, you know, my mantra is uh, dessert is the new dinner. Uh, my next column, uh, which, you know, uh, we'll have uh, just like mini reviews of Stevie Nicks and Depeche Mode, former clients. Yeah. At the T-Mobile Arena. So I wrote about more about the T-Mobile Arena as like the place. Fantastic sound, first mm -hmm. of all. Like the Forum in LA where it just sounds, crisp, you know, just crystal clear. Um, just fabulous acoustics. So I... So I'm able to work in that. I'll go to some shows. And sometimes I like to write about some, quote, vintage bands. I saw the Cow Sills at the Golden Nugget. And while there's only three original members, those are like three original voices. And they had a hard, as we learned from their recent Showtime documentary, they had a horrible upbringing where they were abused by their father. It's uh, an essential documentary, I think, but it's hard to watch. Anyway, seeing them on stage was so celebratory at the Golden Nugget. And they were kind of, they were poking fun at the documentary in some ways, in a way that uh, they didn't like dishonor their past, but it was a way for them to move on. And it was just totally fascinating. So I like to, like, like here in Las Vegas, you could go see you know, whether it's Aerosmith, Foreigner, there's a million classic rock bands to see, but there's that left of center part of my brain going, no, go to the Cow Sills, because that's different. So I've, you know, when I grew up in New York City, I would always try to do different things. Like when I was 15, I was reading The Village Voice and a story popped up about the New York Dolls and they had not even been signed. So my friend and I went downtown they were, uh, they were not checking IDs because it was in a theater. Uh, it was in the Mercer Arts Center. Um, and I saw the New York Dolls when I was 15 or 16. And, you know, this is at a time when all of my friends, including myself, were listening to the Almond Brothers, the Dead, Coco, Flying Burrito Brothers, Humble Pie, or, or what have you. And seeing the dolls, I mean, we were kids out of our element because it had the whole Warhol crowd that was all dressed up and we were dressed probably looking like what we were. We were like, like hippie, you know, hippie kids uh, dressed like that. That was a life-changing show because I really got to see the electricity of downtown lower New York, which I hadn't been exposed to like that. Yeah, we knew what the Greenwich Village was, but I never like went at night. And it's that old expression, they only come out at night. <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it was so exciting to see that. And so when we came back to high school, like a day or two later, I just felt like, I'm, you know, I'm instantly superior to all of you because <laughs> we just saw something that was just mind blowing. And, you know, it was, I mean, David Bowie already had staked his claim I believe if you look at the timeline, but the dolls were doing it locally and people who wanted to go out to see, to see it frequently. Cause you know, when you have big stars, they only come through a city, like maybe like once every eight months, if that, I mean, that's why a band like Kiss was able to get popular. I mean, they're talented in the first place, but bands like Zeppelin, they came like once every nine, 10 months. So Kiss and Ted Nugent, they toured constantly. And that's how they built their audiences by just playing frequently. So 
I know I, I, I digress constantly, but hopefully it's fun. <laughs> it's all interesting. It's all about music, which I love. Um, so that leads me to my final question for you. What is your own personal rock and roll nightmare? My own personal rock and roll nightmare. Okay. It's the cover photo shoot for Corn when they were on the cover of Spin. So here's what happens. The band arrives to the photo shoot and Corn, they're they're kind of a badass band. They were they were, you know, respectful of the media but you know, doing photo shoots, it's not, it, it, like they never saw themselves as a glam band. So um, Spin was feeling like we want to get a picture on the cover of you guys jumping the way your audience is so fervent. And the guy said, that's lame. We do not want to be seen jumping on the cover. We're the artists. And Corn were usually seen looking in a, you know, a group shot looking badass and glum or whatever, mm. you know, or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So then they say, well, we think that you're part of a new movement that we would like to call guerrilla rock, G-U-E, you know, which I thought that's cool. If you think that corn's part of a new revolution, that's great. So they have guerrilla suits. Like okay. <laughs> There was no way in hell the band was going to get into the gorilla suits. So anyway, uh, okay, so that idea is scrapped. So uh, about a month later, we're called by uh, the magazine saying, look, the photos really just did not work out. And we're giving the band the opportunity to do another shoot. Um, the band couldn't do another shoot because Jonathan Davis, the lead singer, his... Uh, his grandmother, I believe, or an aunt with whom he was very close passed away. It was not going to work out. And Spin had to put something on the cover. So what they did was, after Korn left the photo shoot and me, they had all of the assistants get into the gorilla suits, five of them. And uh, which was just insane. Yeah. And so when you see, and then they superimposed Korn's heads onto that. Wow. When you look at the when you look at the cover of Spin, you'll see that, and the band just detested it. Yeah. And even though even though it did say Gorilla Rock on the cover, it was they didn't want to be photographed that way. As a result of that, the photo contracts at our company have things that every a uh, conceptual idea at a photo shoot must be discussed in advance with the artist and approved. We also have things in there. There could be no digital uh, enhancements of switching and backdrops that didn't exist at the time of the, uh, the original photo shoot. Um, things like no usage of cell phones on the set for photographs the only person allowed to shoot imagery would be the photographer. The photographers actually like that stipulation because they want to make sure the makeup artist or whoever is there is not leaking photos from a photo shoot. Yeah. You know, I remember I did a photo shoot with Steven Tyler and I thought it was such a successful photo shoot and it was, but he called me when I got back to my hotel room. He goes, Mitch, you couldn't see it 
but from where uh, from where you were standing. But there were people taking photographs on their phone. This is like 12 years ago when uh, the quality wasn't even good, but you still had the ability to take pictures on your phone because I don't like that. I don't like the fact that people have this and they could put these images out. So I said, well, I'll put something into my photo contract about that no usage of cell phone cameras or cameras of any kind uh, on a set. The only person who's allowed to uh, take pictures is the proper photographer. And Steven Tyler is so hyper-specific, bless his heart. He goes, when you add that to your photo contract, can you send it to me so I can see that it's there? I, <laughs> I said, sure. And because in this business, he's been told many lies by many people. And he said it, he has said it in interviews. He goes, the worst thing anybody can tell you in the music business is two words, trust me. <laughs> Indeed. So, so when I worked with him, I got on with him very well because I was, I'm just as hyper-specific as him. Actually, no, he's more hyper-specific than me and he could, bless his heart, make me crazy. But it was for all the right reasons. It's like, yeah, we got to get this done right. And uh, so, yeah, so that's just like all of the crazy aspects of publicity. Wow. Well, that's quite quite a lot to absorb. Um, so where can uh, our listeners find and follow you online? Let's see. Well, um, I'm under Mitchell Schneider at Facebook um, at Instagram. You can find me as Mitchell Schneider 6519. Uh, that's on Instagram. And um, our website for the Schneider Rondon organization, uh, abbreviatedly known as SRO PR. Some people think it's standing room only, but <laughs> it, it's Schneider Rondon organization. Okay. And uh, so that's SROPR.com. And we uh, put up all of our press releases, a lot of fun stuff. That's it. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for entertaining my digressions. <laughs> thank you, Mitch. <laughs> and uh, once again, SROPR.com. So uh, you can find all the information there on new artists, emerging artists, classic artists who are still at it and um, highly recommended. Wow. Well, thank you. Do you want to be my agent? <laughs> I'll be your publicist. Thank <laughs> you. Well, fantastic. Catch you later. Bye. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series, too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R-O-C-K-N-R-O-L-L-Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. <laughs>